Well, howdy, y'all. How you doing today? Um, pleasure to be with you again, Crystal Ball. Indeed. Same here. Um, Mr. Kalinsky. That, I, that's too official for me. <laughs> I would rather you call me, like, fucking prick than, than call me Mr. Kalinsky. <laughs> Make me feel like I have even more grays than I do. I don't say so myself when you say that. Um, so, exciting show we got coming up. We're talking to John Nichols of The Nation. Yep. Really, really interesting guy. He has quite a bit of insight on the Bernie movement, on the Democratic Party. You know, he's uh, he's somebody who written many interesting books. Yes. To say the least. Yes. Labor guy. I really came to know him during the Wisconsin uprising and pushback against Scott Walker and his attempt to mm. labor rights. That's where he really, you know, jumped onto my radar. It was really well known before that, too. Early Bernie believer has been, you know, a 2016 believer yeah. in that sort of politics for a long time. So it will be great to talk to him. His latest book is called The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, um, which is always right up our alley, right up yeah. our alley, of course. And so I was telling you about um i've been reading this book and we actually interviewed on rising the authors of the, this book lucky mm-hmm. how joe biden barely won Just the presidency pause real quick. britney yes. spears song popped into my mind but go ahead keep going that's a great song <laughs> great song she's so lucky <laughs> <laughs> actually one of my favorite she's britney songs but okay sorry, anyway <laughs> um so it's really interesting because this is written by two very mainstream reporters, Amy Parnes of actually The Hill, where mm-hmm. I am, and Jonathan Allen, who's someone that um, actually when I was at the cycle at MSNBC, we'd interview him all the time. So I have a long history with him. So it's just a very like pretty neutral journalistic telling mm-hmm. of the 2020 campaign, like a game change style campaign memoir. And the entire story of the primary could be called like the plot to fuck over Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Because, you know, when we covered this during the primary, at times I would feel like I was crazy. Like, am Same. I a conspiracy theorist? Yep. Mm-hmm. Am I seeing things that aren't there? But when you read the book and what was actually happening behind the scenes, you come to realize we were too measured in <laughs> Actually, how we were like the rigging was actually more overt and more direct, and the whole energy of everyone in the Democratic Party, whether it was Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton or Obama or Pete or Joe or John Kerry, anybody, Tom Perez, it was all about we will take anyone except Bernie Sanders, including to the point that they have centrist establishment Dems telling them if Bernie is the nominee. We're not sure what we'll do, whether we'll back him or Donald Trump. Like that's and, and that was, again, something we theorize of like they would rather lose to Trump than to back Bernie. Mm-hmm. They, they literally admitted that to yeah. Jonathan and to Amy. And I mean, it just shows just like the story coming out of Nevada this week shows like uh, the whole whenever they say unity. Tell them to such go shove a spiked bat up their anuses because, like, that's, I mean, you don't believe in unity at all. Like, at least be honest with me. At least be honest with me and be like, I'm a centrist corporate douchebag and that, those are my politics and so I'm never going to be for your person. Because at least I'd be honest, but they don't do that. They're, oh, unity, fall in line. You have to vote for Hillary. You have to vote for Biden. Uh, this is what unity is about. But if Bernie Sanders won the primary, there they, they are ready. in that book. Like, I don't know, man, that Trump guy. I mean, what am I going to do? They're that scared <laughs> of New Deal policies. Of, like, people having health care. I mean, it's seriously. Standard so New Deal policy. Here's the quote from Lucky. They say, many unnerved Democratic establishment centrists weren't sure what they would do if it came down to Trump and Sanders in a general election. Found it or not, 
their fears of losing their party to socialism competed with their fears of Trump winning a second term. And these would be the same people who would be on cable news saying Trump is literally Hitler. He is literally Mm -hmm. bringing fascism to the country. We must resist at all costs unless it's Bernie as the nominee. And then, oh, we don't know what to do. And they're not even right about Bernie. This is a point that pisses me off because nobody really likes to correct the record on this. But he's not a fucking socialist. He's a social Democrat. He's a Scandinavian-style social Democrat. He's an FDR-style New Deal Democrat. It's not socialism when you talk about universal health care and giving people paid vacation time and universal daycare. That's not socialism. And Bernie Sanders never said, democratize the entire business, uh, you know, every business in the country. He never yeah. said that. I also, like, I actually wish Bernie was a little more like their imagination version sure, of Bernie. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that's something else that we'll probably talk about today is like, you know, when he has a chance to do something like hold up the Much. bill over minimum wage, he doesn't actually do it, right? Uh, uh, he was probably going to vote for Neera Tandon if she didn't uh, have her nomination pulled. So this idea that he was going to blow everything up ended up being a fantasy, even though I kind of wish it wasn't yeah, a fantasy. But um, there were some other nuggets in the book, too, that I think are worth mentioning. So one of them is they have Bill Clinton meeting with Tom Perez. And of course, we all know Obama forced Tom Perez mm-hmm. into that position at DNC. That yeah. was Obama very rarely like gets his hands dirty in politics. But that was the first thing that he really intervened to beat Ellison, in to, beat to Ellison. make sure that Tom Perez beat Keith Ellison, mm-hmm. who was the Bernie yep. progressive pick. And then Bill Clinton meets with him and says, you have one job over the next few years, and that's to make sure this is not the Bernie Sanders party. Then you have um, Hillary. Apparently, report according to this book, she really was thinking about getting in the race. Whoa. Like up until uh, when she was looking at the polls going into Iowa and saw Bernie surging, Biden's just like total. I mean, his campaign at that point was a disaster. They're out of money. He comes in, what, fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire. I mean, it's just like a complete disaster. She was looking at this and they have very similar language of she thought, I think this was the way they phrased it. She thought, Bernie versus Trump would be a lose-lose for her and for the country. Again, not like, I'll do, if it's Bernie, I'm going to do whatever I can. It's like, I got to do everything to stop him from getting in. John Kerry was going through a similar calculus. I reported on that because they reported that at yes, the time. Yes, yeah. that he was floating this mm-hmm. in a phone call, like steps away from Biden aides when he's in Iowa supposedly to support Biden. And then Bloomberg jumping in. Bloomberg actually does jump in because of the same thing of like, oh my God, what can I do to make sure it's not Bernie Sanders? Savior of the plutocrats. I'm on my way. You have... Pete and the whole Iowa debate, this is another, this reading through the way, I don't know if you guys remember this, before the Iowa caucus, there's this key Seltzer and Seltzer poll that's like the poll. Mm -hmm. It's the most significant poll in all politics. And CNN had a big like primetime special, got to reveal the results of this poll. And they managed, they they found out the results ahead of time, Mm -hmm. that it was Bernie won. Elizabeth Warren, two, and Pete down in third. And they knew Pete had to win Iowa or he was completely dead in the water. And they managed to, they literally robocalled CNN until they convinced them to spike this poll over some, like, bullshit claim that Pete's name wasn't read off on one of the calls or whatever. Okay, that denies Bernie with two days of momentum-building coverage. And then Pete won Right. One. And one one. his top advisor, remember all of this, his top advisor is married to the woman who developed the shadow app that screwed everything up. They helped fund it. 
They funded the fucking app. Yes. So every like everything is done to go against Bernie Sanders. And one of the more stunning um, anecdotes here that you'll get the significance of was Obama was so opposed to Bernie. He went through like phase flirtations with thought he liked Beto. He thought Pete. This is funny. He thought Pete was too short to become president. Ah! <laughs> it is funny. Um, he liked Kamala oh, for a while. He liked Warren for a while. And that's noteworthy because he and he had never really forgiven her for she had spiked, you know, some of the nominees he wanted and kind of went to war with him in a Consumer couple of financial protection small ways when, um, sh- when he was president and she was in the Senate. But he thought as she was rising the polls that she was the best bet to beat Bernie and block him out. So he actually goes to a group of black Wall Street and corporate executives and is affirmatively making the case to them for Elizabeth Warren as a bulwark against Bernie Sanders. And then the subtext of all of that is that Biden was his last choice. Biden was like, no one else is left. I guess we have to go with Joe. But he had told his advisors, he was, or Joe's advisors, he sat them down and said, I'm worried that Joe's going to embarrass himself. Yes. and, And you saw every step of the way with the media coverage it reflected Obama's preferences every step of the way. That's totally true. So you saw yeah. like the rise of Beto. Pff, I'm just born to do it, man. Oh my god! Posing on a fucking cover of whatever it was, GQ or some shit. Like, <laughs> look at me. Vanity Fair, I believe. Vanity Fair, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so Beto had his moment in the sun, and then you had Elizabeth Warren had a moment. Kamala did well for three and a half seconds before she imploded because all she could talk about was Trump's Twitter account. Like. Whatever Obama preferred at the time, that person spiked and then they immediately plummeted because they're nothing. They're empty vessels. So remember, the way Biden became the default option was that, what did I call it? Bloody Monday, I think I called it, when everybody dropped out Mm. and endorsed uh, Biden at the last minute. Because if if Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar did not drop out and endorse Biden that day, Bernie Sanders would have swept. He would have won. So many of the upcoming, it was just pre-Super Tuesday, right? Was, yeah. Yeah. It was just pre-Super Tuesday. Bernie would have won, and he would have won, to be clear, he would have won with a plurality. He wouldn't have won with a majority, but he would have picked up a plurality, and he would have been unstoppable because nobody would have been able to make up the difference. Yeah. So they needed to pull the strings behind the scenes, and like you said, Obama was like, I guess we got to go with Joe. Yeah, when he had no other option, he was like, all right, let me call Pete. Let me call Amy. Let me make this thing happen. And um, same thing actually with Clyburn. He was reluctant. It took really. Him, mm-hmm, I didn't know Clyburn a, was reluctant. A while to get in and wasn't sure that he was going to endorse. But it was the same thing of like, okay, well, here we go. And um, the calculation that I think I didn't recognize fully at the time, but is laid out really clearly in this book for someone like Pete who, by the way, comes off terribly in the book. They describe him as bloodless, bloodless, which I think won't surprise anyone. But um, someone as ambitious as him, I thought he's not going to get out of this race because his ego won't let him. Mm-hmm. But it was the opposite calculation. He thought to himself, if I stay in and I am blamed for helping Bernie secure the nomination, then my future in the Democratic Party is over. And that was the calculation. Now, Amy, I think, had an ideological, even though she and Bernie are kind of buds, she had an ideological opposition to him. She also was angling to hopefully be vice presidential nominee. Didn't work out after George Floyd Mm -hmm. and everything else. But Pete's explicit, like, the careerist ambition analysis was, if I'm even seen as doing anything that helps Bernie Sanders secure the nomination, my future is 
is dead in the Democratic Party. That just tells you how much they all hated him and would do anything to make sure he didn't succeed. You know, but I also can't help myself but comment on what I view as the entitlement of the Biden team. Where it's like, that is the way Pete was thinking about it. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, my future in the Democratic Party is done if I don't be a team player and drop out and endorse Biden. Mm -hmm. And it's like, nobody's fucking entitled to anybody's endorsement. Nobody's entitled to anybody else's vote. The idea is an idea that used to be more of a Republican idea, which is like, Biden is next in line now Mm. in order to be, you know, the nominee and the president. And that's like, what a ridiculous way of thinking. But it gets to the main point about Biden, which is he's the placeholder president, as I think you, you use that term. He's the placeholder president. It's like... He doesn't even know what the fuck he stands for. You know, it's like status quo, backslapping, old-timey corporate goon. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, it's just that's so depressing that that's where we're at. It's <laughs> well, like the it, era of Trump, and this is what's coming up after it, back to the corporatism. It's kind of actually depressing when you read some of the details about his campaign. Because it was a fucking mess. I mean, it was a disaster. They were disorganized. They couldn't make a decision. They were out of money. They were so out of money. They were having conversations with Joe. I think this was after New Hampshire about mortgaging his house to be able to make payroll. Oh, my God. You're the former vice president of the United States. Holy shit. And that was the situation that they allowed themselves to get in. I mean, it really, Ryan Grimm described his victory in the primary as an accident of history, and I would say his victory in the general election really was, too, because he was completely saved by COVID. COVID, 100%. Something that, again, his advisors admit in this book. Think about that. Donald Trump was a horrendous president. Like, there's no metric by which he succeeded. Mm -hmm. None. Mm -hmm. And especially that was all exposed during coronavirus. And you were dependent on him just complete, like, killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. You barely scrape by and sneak through. It's utterly pathetic. And they want to run around and be like, oh, we, we won by a broad margin. We have a mandate, et cetera, et cetera. You barely squeaked by. And there's zero self-reflection. Zero. About None, what nothing. a corroded husk of a shell the Democratic Party is. That the one thing you set out to do beat Donald Trump, you only did, not because of any of your, like, brilliant tactics or whatever, you had the good sense to keep Joe Biden in the basement and let Trump hang himself. Yeah, well, now that I'm depressed, thank you very much for that rant. I appreciate it. You just brought my mood <laughs> all the way down here. Now you read the book, here. you know, but it actually um, is a really interesting book. Let me do a quick shameless plug real quick, and then we'll jump into the interview. Um, if you're listening to this uh, via audio, I don't know what you're doing with your life, Tip us five bucks a month. Get the video. This way you could see the lovely crystal ball. Um, next week we <laughs> have. can't be though. We got to come up with a better selling point. <laughs> next week we have June Shoe on head. Does that work? That's good. Okay. Yeah. So we have June Shoe. I know these people do not give a fuck about me <laughs> and how I look. Stop. They care about you. You always say that. That's not true. No, it's so true. They want to see your gray hair. I don't even want to. give you a hard time about just for men. Uh, it's rich, really gray. I'm not a fan of this. I've gone tighter on the sides See, to hide the gray. This is where my feminist comes in. It's bullshit that you can have the gray hair and you're distinguished and it's salt and pepper and it looks good and it looks handsome. If I let my hair go gray at all, it'd be over. They just like immediately come in and pull me off the Are air. Are you flirting with me, Crystal Ball? <laughs> Do I sense a little flirtation? You just said you I look distinguished with my gray hair. I look like I'm fucking... Just trying to build you up since I made that just for men joke. I'm okay. sorry. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the sympathy flirtation. Um, 
so anyway, uh, five bucks a month, guys. You get the video. You get it on Friday. Uh, if you don't want to pay the five bucks a month, Saturday everything comes out. You'll get everything in full audio version. Next week we have June shoe on head. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't say this specific weeks for this, but we do have in the future coming up Cornell West. Yeah, we do have in the future coming up Andrew Yang. Yeah. Um, Somebody else that I'm blanking on at the moment, too. But there's we got a bunch of pretty cool guests lined up, so everybody should be excited about that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, Substack. And also, whether you pay the five bucks and get the video or you just want to hear the audio, you could still subscribe on Substack for free to get the audio right when it drops on Saturday. So either way, go subscribe on Substack, whether you do the $5 per month for the video or whether you just want to do the audio. Either way, go subscribe. You could sub for free or you could sub for the 5 bucks a month to get the video. Anyway, uh, on to you for the introduction. Yes. So our guest today is uh, someone who I admire quite a lot. Great commitment to um, labor politics. Great critic, fair critic of the Democratic Party. National affairs correspondent for the nation and the author of the book, The Battle, wait, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, John Nichols. John Nichols, welcome. So great to see you. It is an honor to be with you both. Um, first off the top, just let me get your assessment of the Biden administration so far, things that you're surprised by, things that you're happy with, things you're worried about. And one question that I've really been pondering is, OK, they got the relief bill through. There were some disappointments. There are some things in it that are really genuinely good and potentially transformational, albeit most of them are temporary at the moment. But what's the path to them doing much more beyond what they've already done? You have put all the important questions on the table, and uh, I hope I can hope I can sort through them uh, quickly and say, first and foremost, look, Joe Biden's been better than I expected. And and I, and I say that bluntly. I've said it you know, since a week or so. Because uh, he's clearly recognized the need to be active, to do things uh, that are real. And the executive orders, uh, while they were not overwhelmingly powerful, they had meaning. And, they, and he came in fast with them. Uh, his appointments have been a mix, of course, but, uh, you know, reasonably good. And they're getting approved, by and large. They're getting him through the Senate. And that's, that's a big deal. Uh, now, when we come to the COVID bill, this is a complexity. Because as you know, Crystal, I've written a lot about the Democratic Party and its challenges historically. My view is the Democratic Party's challenge always is whether to be a managerial or an activist party. And while this you know, American relief plan that has been approved is a huge measure, and it's got a lot of good stuff in it, uh, frankly, there's a lot to argue in favor of, it is a managerial bill. It's what you put down when you come to power and you've got a mess to clean up. And now the challenge is, are they going to actually make the changes that will be remembered, and this is very political, in November 2022 and in 2024? That is not in this bill. They didn't increase the minimum wage. Uh, the payments are one-time payments and, and not as much as was initially promised. Uh, a lot of what's in here is temporary. And at the end of the day, this doesn't add up to something that, to my mind, has the, the kind of permanent political impact to really get people excited a year and a half or more than a year and a half from now. And beyond that, I think they have a huge Senate problem. The fact of the matter is that this they got through with reconciliation, 
Maybe they can get uh, a infrastructure bill through with reconciliation, but then you are going to have a pile of bills, major bills on labor law, police reform, environmental issues, the whole host of things. And if they can't figure out a way to pass some of them, and frankly, figure out a way to pass a real uh, minimum wage increase and a variety of other things, they're going to have problems with their base. And they're also, this is the Biden administration and the Democrats, also going to have uh, problems exciting people in November 2022. Biden... In my estimation, based on some of his comments so far, it does appear like he's waving a little bit of a white flag because he came out and said he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. He doesn't want to do filibuster reform. And then on top of that, Joe Manchin said to Axios that he won't go along with any other bill through reconciliation. He wants Republican support for whatever Biden's next move is, and it looks like it's probably going to be infrastructure. So given that set of facts, you know, unless that changes, do you agree with my assessment that like literally nothing is major is going to get done from here on out? And how could they change that? Well, first off, I agree with your assessment. That's exactly what I'm talking about. They have a Senate problem. This is for real. And uh, they, I'm struck this week, unsettled this week, frankly, by their determination to do a victory lap, this huge victory lap uh, off the American Relief Plan. It's certainly something for them to celebrate. They passed something big, but it, it, there is about it, in my mind, uh, a sense of desperation, a, a sense of desire to say, oh, see, we did this, we can do this. Uh, but they haven't done what's necessary to deal with their Senate problem. And if Biden refuses to do filibuster. And if Manchin refuses to allow for an expansive view of uh, reconciliation, and frankly, for an expansive view of how they deal with the, the Senate parliamentarian on a host of issues, they're stuck. They, they, run, the, they run the very real risk of only being to, able to govern in the way that, uh, at the worst, Obama got stuck in. And that was Anything he wanted to pass that was major, he had to go through a long negotiation with the Republicans and barter off a huge part of what he wanted to accomplish. Uh, and I think that did President Obama, uh, Vice President Biden back in those days, a lot of damage. I think it fed into uh, the challenges they had in the 2010 and 2014 midterms. And so I, I, I do think this is a very dangerous place. And I know I'm kind of the person who comes to the party and says, you know, it's about to rain. But uh, I, I do think that this is something they've got to deal with. And I don't see the signals yet from the Biden administration that they recognize that. Yeah. John, give people a sense yeah. of your politics and, and how you do. I would actually like to know, how did you come to be to have the political perspective that you have? I really got to know your work when you were um, doing an amazing job covering the uh, Wisconsin, Scott Walker, the attack on union rights there. You've got this, you know, Midwestern populist sensibility. Um, you, I think, are someone who's very honest about the Democratic, giving, Democratic Party giving credit where it's appropriate and also challenging them to do more and do better. How do you come by that, those politics? My mom. Uh, look, the bottom line is I'm uh, born and raised in the rural Midwest. I grew up in a town of 970 people or when I was born. Got a few more now. 
Uh, it was a farm town, and uh, my mother and her grandfather uh, were old school Wisconsin progressives, not Democrats and not Republicans. They literally were members, especially my my great grandfather of the Wisconsin Progressive Party. That was like the Minnesota Farmer Labor, the North Dakota non popular or nonpartisan uh, and populist movements. And so the bottom line is that I come out of uh, a tradition that is very skeptical about both major parties, uh, definitely is on the left. I think that's, that's the best way to understand it as regards economic and social and racial justice, uh, and also, frankly, has kind of a deeper overlay of, of anti-war, anti-militarism uh, than I think a lot, of, a lot of liberals, if you will. And I was raised, I gotta be honest, I was raised as somebody who saw the term liberal as not attractive. Um, I, I was raised in, in what was understood as an old school progressive populist tradition. And, uh, that's, I guess I, I guess it's, you know, kind of in my DNA now, and I find it hard to get away from, uh, and that does get me, you know, sometimes it, it makes people unhappy because at the end of the day, I've always been very comfortable criticizing the democratic party, uh, when I thought they weren't doing a good job. So, um, who do you view as the de facto leader of the Bernie movement at the moment? And who do you like for 2024 in the Democratic primary? Is there anybody on the horizon that catches your eye? Great question. Uh, And look, you know, I think that the Sanders movement continues at this point to be uh, led at least to some point by Sanders himself. I don't see him as running another presidential race, but it is important to understand that when I go around the country, and now I do it a lot more by Zoom than I used to do physically, but when I'm talking to people at the grassroots, and I just was on an event last night with hundreds of people, uh, progressive activists from all over, you know, Bernie Sanders remains a touchstone for them, and they follow what he does. They were very excited last week when he was fighting the uh, minimum wage fight in the Senate. And so there hasn't been a clear handoff there. However, there has been uh, both parallel to it, sometimes attached, sometimes separate, the rise of a new generation. And this rising new generation has a, a whole host of people in it who are emerging as leaders. And they're emerging as leaders both uh, on the floor of Congress uh, or in state houses. And also, frankly, in social media, which is such a powerful force in our politics, you can't neglect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's no question of that. And, and I think that, that she clearly has a lot of people who are listening to her, paying attention to her, uh, hoping for whatever next move she makes. But I would also point to some other folks. I think there is a, a real rising interest in Ro Khanna, uh, the congressman from California. And Kana is so active, stepping up in so many places. He was way out front uh, in fighting for a $15 minimum wage and a host of other improvements. He's been way out front on direct payments and fighting on that issue. He's also been way out front on war and peace issues, which always get underestimated. But he was immediately out when Biden bombed uh, Syria or allowed the bombing of Syria uh, with a criticism of that. And, and it was very aggressive and very blunt. So I think he's got a, a good deal of, of uh, traction, frankly, as someone who's, who's out front there. And of course, I would also mention, I think that Ayanna Presley out of Massachusetts 
is getting she doesn't get as much attention as she should. Uh, same with Ilhan Omar to some extent, but they have a lot of following around the country. I think if I can add one more person in the U.S. Senate, uh, I would look at Jeff Merkley from Oregon because uh, he seems to be very much on top of issues, stepping up in a very blunt, very aggressive way uh, quite often. And and I think that's that's consequential. He is someone who uh, backed Bernie for president in 2016 in, in what was been a very rare move. Um, and I think he has a good deal of respect uh, in in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to the extent that that can be defined. So a lot of those names uh, that you mentioned there, I'm obviously very sympathetic to, and I know Crystal is as well. Um, but I, I was one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, and now there's a bit of, I guess you could call it like a Justice Democrats caucus, which is supposed to be, it's supposed to be what the progressive caucus was made for. Like, we don't think the Progressive Caucus is all that progressive. And so you have this subset of actually progressive Congress people. But I have to ask you, does it bother you that um, this group, they have numbers to really throw their weight around and sort of make demands and really be unapologetic? Uh, and to this point, they haven't done it. I mean, take, take for example, the COVID relief bill. You had Ro Khanna draft a letter with over 20 um, House progressives, and the letter said, hey, overrule the parliamentarian, keep the $15 minimum wage in the $1.9 trillion relief bill. But then he went on to give an interview after that and basically said, yeah, if I have to vote for the relief package without the $15 minimum wage in there, yeah, I'll do it. And, you know, one of the problems as I see it, and again, I, I co-founded Justice Democrats, so I know because I was in the room for the conversations. The whole idea was let's copy those Tea Party tactics and really be unap- unapologetic and brutal and treat Nancy Pelosi in the exact same way that we treat, you know, Mitch McConnell. And the fact that they weren't willing to band together and say, no, 23 of us are going to block this bill unless you put the $15 minimum wage in there. Does that upset you as much as it upsets me that even though they're nominally correct on the issues, that they're really unwilling to fight in the way that we want them to. Uh, it, it unsettles me. And to some extent, it upsets me. Uh, it, I'm not, I'm not going to try and uh, read into your mind on the level of upset one way or the other, but I can talk about it to at least to some extent my perspective on this. Uh, what we were talking about initially is the problem, right? This Senate problem, this inability to uh, make things move unless you get rid of the filibuster, unless you overrule the parliamentarian, unless you take the steps that are necessary. And so to my mind, there is a, there's a confrontation coming. It's got to happen. And, and I think that uh, if someone had stepped up in the Senate, or if a handful of people had stepped up in the Senate and said, Nope, we're going to slow this thing down. I know we were, you know, it all looks like we were about to close the deal, but we're not going to let this deal be closed without the $15 minimum wage. And I think the Senate was more the place to do it uh, in that regard. Uh, if they, if someone or a handful of people had stepped up and done that, then I think we would have had the test. And I think this is how politics always goes. You see, you know, do you stand up? Do you make the move? Do you do you block action? And does the country? rally to you? Is there clear evidence that there's an energy for that, that people say, yes, we think that should happen? And do those who stand up then have the the willingness, the courage, the strength to continue to do so, despite the fact that our media system will, you know, just 
it, it'll be a pundit, you know, assault, right? Everybody will be like, you know, going after you and blaming you and stuff like that. And are, you know, somebody willing to, to do that? We have seen historically, right, with Barbara Lee voting uh, in 2001 against the AUMF, with Russ Feingold voting against uh, the Patriot Act, a handful of other people who have done these moves at critical times, they haven't been punished, right? They have, they've, you know, at least especially in Barbara Lee's case, she's gone from strength to strength. And, um, and so I think that we're going to have to get to that point. And, and so I would not have minded at all if it had come in this initial state and if someone had done it. And frankly, I think the place to do it, uh, again, I, I lean more toward the Senate as the place to have done it. And I just simply think that there's got to be a pushback against Joe Manchin, Christian Cinema, and a handful of others uh, simply becoming the, the dominant forces in, in the United States Senate. So, yeah, I, I, hope, I, I hope I'm not you know, being too arcane with this and going into the minutia of these, these different fights. But to my mind, uh, I guess I would have liked to have seen some of that pushback uh, in this initial fight because I know it's going to have to come at some point. Well, especially on an issue that's as popular as $15 minimum mm, wage. Yep. I mean, it's just a really clear, really popular. You would have the people on your side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the commentary, they would melt down and they would hate you. And guess what? People would like you more right, yeah. because of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing is there has to be this willingness to actually be hated by elite institutions because that's yep. exactly what you're going to court and have confidence that that is actually going to make people love you more and be even more behind you and rally behind you to an even greater extent. That's exactly it. You know, I wrote a book about this and, you know, and, and the, the quote that I come back to again and again and again is the quote from the only democratic president in the history of the party to win four times for president. The only democratic, the only democratic president, uh, in the modern age to win every one of his midterm elections, right? So, you know, gets elected, wins a midterm, gets elected, wins a midterm, gets elected, wins a midterm, right? I mean, maintains governing power. And what did Franklin Roosevelt say when they went after him for going after Wall Street, when they went after him for doing deregulation, labor rights, all these other things? I welcome their hatred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm getting giddy over here talking about FDR. <laughs> I think you misnamed it Justice Democrats. That's a nice name. I appreciate it. Um, I think maybe what we're ultimately going to need is a I welcome their hatred pocket. Mm, yeah. And actually, funny enough, we almost named it New Deal Democrats. Mm. Almost yeah. named it that. Yeah. yeah. And- you know, one one other thing that I was thinking about with regards to the new um, the new rising talent in the progressive wing. And this is a little bit delicate, so I want to be careful with how I phrase this. But, you know, part of what was special about Bernie is that he was able to tie together the sort of young left activist base. But especially in his first run, he was able also to bring in, you know, the the 
Midwestern working class, mm-hmm. br- bring back some of the rural folks who have abandoned the Democratic Party. And, I, you know, partly that's because he's a white guy and it's more comfortable for a lar- large part of the country. Let's be clear about that. And the new faces you're talking about are predominantly women of color and also men of color. Um, but do you think that they w- but I also think they've positioned themselves ideologically a little bit different than Bernie. Do you think it makes it harder for them to have more than a, a niche online appeal? No, I do not. <laughs> I think it is incredibly possible, and I have seen uh, the the ability and the power of of some of these rising folks to go out and do it. And uh, you know, I was with uh, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez when they went out in uh, the summer of 2018 to campaign for James Thompson in Kansas, and uh, I saw the crowds that showed up. I saw. Uh, aging farmers and and uh, workers from factories and and immigrants and and people you know students all kinds of folks packing those places and I know that Bernie was a big part of it I understand that but there was an excitement at seeing Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and I have to tell you she did really I mean she prepared for that speech I was I was struck by the fact that she was something that we don't talk about enough. A good politician. She had her. She had her Kansas references. She had her ways of making connections. And when she made those connections, then she talked about the fundamental issues. I think that good political skills, in combination with a progressive populist vision, can work. And if I can emphasize an example of this, people don't talk enough about one of my U.S. senators, Tammy Baldwin. Tammy Baldwin is, was the first out lesbian elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, the first out lesbian elected to uh, the United States Senate. She is from Madison, Wisconsin, a very liberal island in a state that is, you know, a real battleground state. There is simply no question of that. She's cast anti-war votes. She voted against the Patriot Act. She voted against the free trade deals. In fact, if you want to look at a parallel voting record, that of Bernie Sanders, you're going to find an awfully lot of examples. and. She has never lost an election. And in tough fighting years, she's been reelected uh, now, tw- or she elected and reelected to the U.S. Senate. And so I look at Tammy Baldwin, an undercovered uh, person in American politics, in my view, as an example that uh, you, can, you can be very progressive. Uh, you can be very in touch with a host of intersectional issues that really matter. And you can reach out to rural, small town folks and make those connections. I'll emphasize that when Tammy Baldwin has run uh, twice statewide in Wisconsin, she has won dozens of rural counties. So uh, let me just add on to Crystal's point, because I want us to, you know, flesh this out a little bit more. Um, So Elizabeth Warren, for example, she, she, sort of uh, got prominence and name recognition in the Obama era, and she was known as, you know, the left flank uh, and trying to push Obama left. She's one of the main reasons we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, if not the main reason we have it. And so she was viewed as a very serious, economically-minded lefty. Uh, And then when she ran for president, she sort of squandered that good name and good rapport she had with the base because she started going all in on more identity-based issues. Kamala Harris is another example of, 
you know, she was doing phenomenally well in the polls early on. And people don't remember that when she ran for president early on, she was sort of trying to position herself as Bernie Light. She was arguing for Medicare for all, and she was unapologetic about that, and she was focusing on economic stuff. She started to tank in the polls the second she abandoned the progressive populist vision on economics. And then, you know, somehow her main issue became we got to ban Donald Trump from Twitter. And she did so poorly in the polls that she eventually had to drop out before Iowa, which is like insane that she was near the top. And then all of a sudden she had to drop out. So I guess my question is, um, do you agree with the framing? Hey, class solidarity and economic issues have to override the culture war. And if you get lost on that battlefield of the culture war, it's a sure way to lose. No, I do not. I do not agree with that. I believe that you can integrate class issues and uh, um, however we want to re- refer to it, you know, cultural issues or uh, whatever. And, and the, the fact is, look, when you build coalitions that can win, I think that you recognize the need to speak to people uh, where they're coming from and they, they come into politics in a lot of different uh, ways. I think identity politics is often the way that people come uh, to politics. And then when they get there, they often embrace a whole bunch of, of uh, additional concerns. And that's why when I, I talk about politics, I always talk about economic and social and racial justice, saving the planet and ending the wars and deconstructing the military industrial complex. I think that's the, that's the program. And I don't think there's a need to de-link that. Uh, in fact, to my mind, I think the, the, wisest politicians are those who figure out how to pull it all together and how to speak to it in in deep and fundamental ways. Uh, My sense is that our media doesn't know how to cover politics, uh, doesn't like to cover politics, uh, wants to dumb it down and simplify it and have expectations that are very, very narrow as regards what is possible. I, I see again and again and again evidence that you can go out and build a, a different politics and a better politics, one that really is uh, not just respectful of, but embracing of immigrants and refugees and uh, people who have been denied and disenfranchised, and and to pull that into a, a politics that also does speak about class and does speak about you know economic justice. I guess at, at one of the the things that I always come back to is that I think that it is possible to frame out a bold, radical politics that appeals to urban and rural voters and that that actually gets traction, that works. And I have seen it happen at the the local, state, and national levels. And maybe I'm revealing myself, you know, just for where I come from. But the fact of the matter is that just... uh, about a week and a half ago, my dear friend uh, Steve Cobble passed away, and Steve Cobble was one of the great strategists in American politics, and was you know kind of one of the backbone people in the Rainbow Coalition with Jesse Jackson. Now, Steve Cobble was a relatively rural, small city, southern New Mexican, uh, who came up and and got into the involved in politics with George McGovern, got into also ultimately the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, was the political director for Carol Mosley Brown's U.S. Senate race, ultimately helped to run uh, Kucinich's races for president. You know, not always winning races, I understand, 
but then was one of the very first people to have the vision of having Bernie Sanders run for president and actually helped to start the draft Bernie stuff. What Steve always came back to was an understanding that you had to always be seeking to build that rainbow. That rainbow coalition vision, yes, it had it at its heart a lot of economic justice issues, but it also had racial justice. It also had respect for immigrants. It also had an understanding of the need to be anti-war, to actually you know, dial down the military industrial complex. And I'm not going to give up on that. I actually believe that that's, that's what works. Look, I think representation really matters. Like, I think it actually is important. But how do you keep from just representation standing in for a more and an even more transformational politics? So let me give you an example. Um, Kirsten Sinema, our lovely senator from Arizona, hmm. who was the first by woman, openly by woman yep. elected to the Senate. And she actually originally, apparently, had good politics. She was like spokesperson for the Green Party in Arizona. Yep. Um, she organized all these anti-war protests. I mean, she was even actually more radical on issues of war and peace than I am. She says war is not appropriate in any circumstance. She was organizing not just against the Iraq war, but also against the Afghanistan war, which was broadly popular at the time. And now she comes to Washington. She does her little, you know, gross, cutesy thumbs down on minimum wage after, by the way, and this part got less attention, she patted Mitch McConnell on the back, turned around to make sure he was watching her with her display, does her thumbs down. And then when she gets challenged on it, what does her spokesperson say? Oh, it's sexist yep. for you to call attention to her vote and the manner in which she voted. And so this is where I get concerned, John, and I know you share the same thing, is oftentimes people will, will use just representation to hide their pro-corporate politics. So they're happy to change things on the surface. They're happy to wear the kente cloth and kneel and paint Black Lives Matter on the ground. But when it comes to actually challenging power, they allow just identity to stand in for actually changing these structures of power that are completely oppressive to especially black, brown, and other disenfranchised communities across the country. Yeah, I, I think you're always going to have you know, an example you can point to there. Uh, and you know, what, I, what I argue is that representation does matter. It, it, does, it means something profound to have uh, multiracial, multiethnic coalitions and to make sure that, that uh, people of color are in leadership positions and have real power and a real say in where things are going, because that's a part of building that coalition. And, and so I, I don't think that that in any way uh, detracts from uh, calling out and challenging folks who don't rise to the occasion on the fundamental issues. I, I take a lot of lessons on this from uh, a, a great group out in Iowa, Iowa CCI. And Iowa CCI has been there for a very, very long time, organizing urban and rural coalitions, putting farmers together uh, with people who buy food in, in uh, the middle of Des Moines. And, and it, it is hard sometimes to build those coalitions. It's hard sometimes to put that together. But when you do, those are rock solid coalitions that actually do share the fundamental values. And so one of my concerns is, frankly, that, that you know, when we talk about representation, uh, we don't recognize that, that at the heart of representation, you want people who have come up uh, in struggles, 
and who have been building coalitions, who know how to do it, and and who want to you know build that out and make it happen. And again, I have seen, and I and I think you have as well, candidates who have come out of one circumstance, right? You know, come you know out of one experience and uh, learn to be really effective uh, at a statewide basis, and sometimes even made connections that might not have been made otherwise. And so I, I, I will hold to the view strongly that representation matters and, and it's real, but so too does accountability to the movements that you come out of. And, and so I, I like uh, some of the Working Families Party model. I like uh, some of the uh, people's action models and, and others where they, they have a, a strong economic and social and racial justice commitment but they also have a strong accountability and they recognize the points at which you have to call people out uh, who are simply not stepping up on a host of issues. And so uh, I guess at the bottom line, my answer to the question is representation matters. But so too does accountability to your base as opposed to say accountability to donors or to, to powerful interests. So let me ask you a pretty open-ended question here. Where do you think Bernie Sanders went wrong with his campaign for president? And do you agree with Noam Chomsky when he said, now to be fair, I think this was about the 2016 campaign, not 2020, but he said that without the, quote, shenanigans of the party managers that Bernie would have won? I think that, um, look, I... Noam is a friend, and so I, I I begin most conversations by saying I agree with him, um, and, uh, and and I do agree with a lot of it. But here's where I, this is the subtlety: I covered the 2016 campaign uh, from the beginning. I did, I think, the first. I certainly did the first high-profile national interview with Bernie Sanders, where he said he was thinking about running for president. This was 2013 into 2014. And, you know, followed this process all the way along. I think there were two things that, that are important to understand. First and foremost, I don't think that initially Bernie Sanders or the people who were supporting him thought he could win. I think that they, they had planned for a campaign that would take off in the way that it did. I will argue, and again, I don't want to put words in other people's minds so someone can disagree with me and that's fine. But my sense is, that initially the Sanders campaign in 2016 was aimed at uh, making a point, right? Uh, saying there are some fundamental issues that have to be in our debate uh, and that are still we're struggling with. Fight for 15, uh, economic, social, racial justice, different perspectives on, on, you know, and people way underestimate the extent that Bernie Sanders focused on uh, climate change throughout that campaign. And so he wanted to bring things forward. And then, of course, trade policy, et cetera. And, and then here was the fascinating thing. It took off. It became electric. I, uh, it happened. Bernie Sanders came in July of 2015 to Madison and asked me to introduce him at an event. And I've introduced him at probably 100 events, you know, a lot of events over the years. And so I said, sure, you know, I'd be glad to. Um, he, it was just after he had announced his candidacy. And, um, and I, you know, I wouldn't have been surprised at all if there were 900 people there. There were 10,000. And so suddenly what you realized was that something real was happening. Something fundamental was occurring here. And I think that the Sanders campaign 
struggled to catch up with its popular appeal, right? And and so that's one fundamental part. And I know you said open ended, so I'm going to put two more quick points on here. Um, the second is media coverage of that that takeoff was uh, stunningly dismissive throughout. I've done analyses of the coverage of Sanders versus the coverage of Trump during the same period when they were at the same place in the polls. It was exponentially more coverage of uh, Donald Trump, exponentially less coverage of Bernie Sanders. And so what you had was a fundamental, uh, you know, kind of uh, dumbing down of the discourse about that 2016 campaign. And then finally, you add into that the mix of, uh, is, you know, no one would say the shenanigans of the party and, and things of that nature. So at some fundamental level, uh, you had a lot of factors that came together that made 2016 not come together in the way that, that I think it could have. And frankly, if Bernie Sanders uh, had been, you know, if there'd been a little bit more of an understanding of how fast it was going to take off, if there'd been better media coverage, if there had been a fairer process, I think he would have been the nominee. I think he would have been elected president. And I think he would have been highly successful as president of the United States. So um, that's my take there. And as regards 2020, uh, I've had a very simple critique on that that I've stated a lot of times. And that is that when Bernie Sanders uh, won Iowa, and I do believe he won Iowa, I think it was a, just an incredible mess, an incredible uh, deconstruction there. Uh, you know, uh, and and so that was bad. You know, I mean, uh, I didn't like the way that the Iowa thing worked out. I think it was a disastrous uh, initial result. But then when he won New Hampshire after that, it's my view that what he needed to do at that point was to uh, pivot into a message of how he would win and how he would govern. And I think yeah. too frequently those speeches in February of 2020. Uh, tended to be still the message, then that very strong message, that very appealing message, uh, and and I do think that that had there been a pivot to, this is a winning campaign, and this is how we're going to govern, uh, I I think that might have had an impact. Yeah, I think that I think that actually makes a lot of sense. I've been reading um, this book, Lucky, that is now out. How Joe Biden barely won the presidency. It's Amy Parnes and Jonathan Allen, and um, it's quite fascinating. I mean, it's like the game change of this year, you know. And going back through the Democratic primary piece, the the subtext, not even the subtext, like the actual content of what's reported there, is basically everybody on uh, who's not named Bernie Sanders is driven by this overwhelming need, urge, desire to defeat Bernie Sanders to the extent that Hillary Clinton was still contemplating, should I get in the race because Biden is filling? John Kerry is thinking about jumping in the race as the stop Bernie candidate. Michael Bloomberg actually jumps in the race. Bill Clinton had told Tom Perez, your only job is to make sure this isn't the Bernie Sanders party. They actually have establishment Democrats admitting to them that if Bernie wins the nomination, they're not sure if they'll back him or back Donald Trump the guy that they've been considering, you know, bringing fascism to America and literal Hitler. Um, is it possible to win? So it's like a, as the left looks forward at the, the lessons learned from that campaign and what to do moving forward with it, whether it's with AOC or Fetterman or Nina Turner, whoever it is. Is it possible to win when you have the entire party dead set against your success? Like, we'll do anything to make sure that you don't succeed. Pretty hard. Um, I wrote a book about this, uh, and, and that book, 
dealt with, uh, uh, I apologize. Um, somebody's handing me things all, all over the place here. Um, uh, and it, it, I do apologize. I, I wrote a book about this because I thought this was such an important issue, and I continue to come back to it again and again and again. There is simply no question that since 1944, when the uh, Democratic Party pushed aside Henry Wallace, who was uh, the visionary, anti-racist, anti-fascist vice president of the United States, and took Harry Truman, who is simply, uh, you know, not as dynamic and not as visionary a political figure, and and installed Truman in that place. You saw what happens uh, when somebody steps up and says, we must address the fundamental issues of this country now, not wait 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, but, but move now. There is a huge reaction from uh, a lot of the Democratic elites, the Democratic establishment, whatever you want to refer to it, that says, no, 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 no. We, do, we want to win, you know, narrowly. We want to win, you know, in the moment. We want to, you know, we want to just kind of, we, we want to be the better managerial party. And this happens again and again and again. And everything that, that you just talked about, Crystal, as regards, um, you know, people threatening not to back the nominee, that happened. George McGovern beat him in 1972, and a huge number of prominent Democrats, donors, uh, elected officials, prominent elected officials, formed Democrats for McGovern. They literally, they literally went out there and um, put ads on TV, ads in newspapers, campaigned across the country, saying, you know, don't vote for our party's nominee. The AFL-CIO didn't didn't back McGovern, and he was a guy who was a a labor historian. And and same thing with Jesse Jackson. I mean, the dismissal of Jesse Jackson uh, in in 84 and 88, despite the fact that he was the dynamic figure uh, in in both those campaigns, the dismissal of Ted Kennedy in 1980, when clearly he had the heart of the party at the end of that campaign, but they wouldn't even consider nominating him. And so this happens again and again and again. Now, you have two choices here. One is to leave, right? To go away, right? Go form a third party or a fourth party. And, and I, don't, I don't dismiss people that do that. I don't uh, disregard people who talk about a multi-party politics. But the other is to say, no, you know what? We're going to take a lesson, uh, in this case, from the conservatives. Uh, they lost. They lost a lot. Uh, they bet on... Uh, some real losers in the 1950s, and, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower pushed him aside and formed a modern Republican Party. They bet on Barry Goldwater, and that didn't go anyplace. They bet on Reagan in 76 and, and got uh, shot down by the establishment, uh, but they didn't give up. They kept coming back, uh, and ultimately Reagan won, beating a lot of, of major forces in the Republican Party in 1980. And, and so my sense is that as hard as political parties work to deny uh, movements to change them, those movements to change them find their moment. And and I don't. I hope I'm not being romantic here. I don't think it's a romantic notion. Uh, I think this is the moment. We've been hit by a pandemic that showed us, you know, all of the disparities, all of the inequalities, all of the challenges in this country. Uh, it's clear that single payer Medicare for all health care is what we need. It's clear that we need uh, employment guarantees, jobs programs. It's clear that we need to address systemic racism and systemic inequality in this country. It's so very clear. And my sense is 
that this is a moment where progressives should start to talk about uh, a necessary politics, not what they want, not what they dream of, but to make the argument that what they seek is necessary. And hmm. if I can point out mistakes that were made in the past, and I can in any one of these campaigns, then that combination of speaking of a necessary politics and frankly, getting your political skills right, you know, getting better and better at politics, I think it is possible. To, I think it's possible to, to, to beat them all. So to your point, I'm reminded of, um, I think there was a Hillary Clinton documentary. I don't know if it was on Hulu or Netflix, but there's this moment that went viral where apparently after Bernie had this giant comeback victory in the, I think it was the Michigan primary, where the polls had him down like 20 points mm-hmm. or something and right. he came back and won. They had a moment behind the scenes, Hillary's staff, where they were just flat out like, oh my God. He's going to win. He's going to beat us. And so I always think back to that moment because that tells you their perspective. The perspective of the establishment was like, oh, my God, this rising tide on the left is inevitable and there's nothing we could do to stop it. So every time we feel like "Ah, there's no hope and what are we doing? You got to remember, they don't even think that there's no hope for us. You know, they know, like, actually, you guys are kind of close and you're knocking on the door. Go ahead. You know that you're you. You nailed it right there because that's the point. And um, and I am delighted to report that both of you are younger than me. And um, and and it is very rare in our society where where somebody um, you know suggests the benefits of age. Uh, but I was lucky enough to uh, be around for the 1990 election cycle. And you think, well, what about who cares about the 1990 election cycle? Well, that was the year when both Paul Wellstone and Bernie Sanders won. And, uh, and I just want to emphasize to you, that's unimaginable, right? That a Democratic Socialist gets elected to Congress and a college professor who had never held public office uh, secures the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate and then beats an entrenched uh, Republican incumbent who wasn't supposed to be vulnerable. And both of them went off to Congress as progressives with, with, few, uh, with, with, with few figures to the left of them. And, and I saw those campaigns uh, work, and, and I saw the magic of it. And I've seen it again and again and again. I have covered campaigns that weren't supposed to have a chance and uh, have come through and won. And power in, in politics. Power always assumes it's going to win because they've got a lot of the media on their side. They've got a lot of the rules on their side. They've got the money on their side. And so they, they have this assumption that it's all going to work out. And it usually does. But I don't think it usually works out simply because of the media, the money, and all those things. I think it's because a lot of times progressives don't recognize that all of that power, right, is very high up with very, very thin, you know, legs holding it up there. And it is possible to knock some of those out and bring power down and actually succeed. And smart people in power actually know that. And that's why they're scared. They know they're, they yeah. know they're vulnerable. They know what could happen. And so I think that uh, with a couple of twists and turns, could Bernie Sanders have been elected president of the United States? 
absolutely. And do I think that in uh, in my lifetime, in your lifetimes, and lifetimes of most people that are whoever might be listening to us today, that a genuine economic and social and racial justice populist progressive who really does want to save the planet and who really does want to end the wars could be elected president of the United States. I think we're closer to that now. I think we are much closer to that now uh, than we've been at any time in a long time. Um, Julius Krein, who's like this populist right thinker, but very interesting guy, he has this riff about... um, you know, we have this kind of illusion of bipartisan combat and, and the battles are really super fierce. But a lot of times what our politics are actually defined by is the era of of that version of consensus. So you had the New Deal era where there was a basic consensus around social welfare programs. You had the Reagan era, or the you know neoliberal or market fundamentalist era that we've been in for some 40 years that, you know, you have a lot of bipartisan consensus about these free trade deals and lowering taxes and deregulation and all of these things. And the battles are fight, fought within the margins. First of all, do you accept that framing of politics? And second of all, do you think that that Reagan era is coming to a close? Because one thing I I really noted with this relief bill, which is wildly popular. I mean, it has like 70 some percent of Americans, including a majority of Republicans who support it, in spite of the fact that it's much larger than the Obama era stimulus. And look, I've got issues with it. I like the term that you use. You find aspects of it unsettling in terms of what they were unwilling to push for, the fact that it's short term, all of that. But this is a it's a lot of spending, a lot of money. And you had some Republicans making the deficit hawk case, but it really did not gin up the level of backlash of like the Tea Party era. So what do you read into that, if anything? And do you think that it is a sign that that kind of Reagan era way of doing politics is coming to a close? I think it is. I think there's no question. And remember, the Reagan era way of doing politics was always a lie. It was summed up by um, great political philosopher Dick Cheney, uh, who, you know, when they had power, said deficits don't matter, right? And yep. uh, and so what we need to understand is they always used the deficit hawk arguments and the cut the taxes arguments and the austerity arguments uh, as a, it was a game to them, right? Once they got power, uh, they spent a lot of money. They just spent it on what they wanted to spend it on. And so in, in any time, there is always the question of what you're going to use government I mean, what are your founding principles? What are your basic premises? Under FDR, Henry Wallace and many of their allies, and remember, FDR wasn't the left of his moment. FDR uh, was relatively progressive, but there were people a lot to his left, and they were pushing him all the time. They were FDR probably had more protests uh, than over the period of his presidency than than the vast majority of presidents in our history, and and so. But what happened in that period was they realized the power of government, and the critical thing was they showed that government could work. And once they did so, even Republicans like Eisenhower didn't want to, they, they weren't going to screw that up. They, they understood that if they started to deconstruct things, as Eisenhower himself said, you know, if you come along and you say you're going to take down, you know, Social Security and labor protections and things like that, uh, you're going to get beat. You know, so they, there was an acceptance across the political sphere that you you could move to this different and better place. Now, Reagan comes along, preaches a gospel of deconstruction of government, government's the problem, all of these messages, and it puts a real imprint on the Republican Party, which was to be expected. 
but also horribly put an imprint on the Democratic, right? And and caused Democrats to talk and literally say, Bill Clinton, the era of big government is over, right? Uh, to go after New Deal programs, to uh, deconstruct uh, regulation of Wall Street, a host of other uh, initiatives. And so you ended up in this situation where uh, even though it wasn't where the American people were, polling showed that, that a lot of what they were doing, these neoliberal approaches weren't popular, both parties bought into this, right? So now the question that we have is whether the Democratic Party is going to break out of this, right? Or is it going to make the horrible mistake, the, the, the devastating mistake of saying, hey, we've got power. Let's, let's you know, make sure that the, that the elites, the powerful, that they like us, right? That they work with us. And the Republican Party at this point is not capable of reconstituting itself as a populist party, as one that actually is, you know, big enough and, and, and real enough because of their racism and xenophobia. Uh, but uh, the, so I don't, I don't see, I don't, I don't buy into this argument that the Republicans have become the party of the working class or something like that. I think that's a, that's, that's a, a fever dream, if you will. But um, what I do think is up for grabs, up for the determination, is whether the Democratic Party determines to get ahead of this thing and be the party that is needed, or whether it goes into a politics of compromise and concession uh, that, that ultimately uh, maintains the dysfunctional politics that we've had now for a very long time. And that is an open question. You know, there is a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. It gets covered up sometimes when you have a, a vote for the American Relief Act or something like that. But it's still there. It's still very real. And Crystal, I agree with you that the, the relief plan has many, many aspects of it that are influenced by the left. I think that you see a triumph of a lot of progressive organizing and progressive activism over a very long time. The fact that the American Relief Act uh, does seek to, you know, ease the pain of those who are in some of the toughest situations, that's, that's real and that does matter. The fact that it is, you know, helping cities and state government, it is an investment in government, that matters. And respect for government, that's, that's in there. The fact that it seeks to uh, respond to historic injustices and systemic ra racism as regards black farmers and others as an example, that matters. That's real. This is real progress. However, however, to take it to the next step out of the, the step of dealing with the crisis of the moment, the emergency of the moment, and get into a genuine vision of government that uses government in the ways that it can and should be used on a steady basis. That's the great test. We were able to do a lot, not as much as I wanted, obviously, but we were able to do a lot when we attached the word emergency or crisis or relief to it. But can the Democratic Party say, yes, and now we're going to do these things because they are good and right and necessary, uh, whether we've got a pandemic or not? whether we have, you know, whatever the, the, the circumstances of the moment, we're going to govern in this new and better way. And it is going to create a more stable economy. It's going to raise people up. It's going to succeed. 
and it's making your bet on the future. That's that you know that's what Roosevelt did, and it and it worked again and again and again and again and again. Um, to some extent, that's what Lyndon Johnson did before he got into the madness of the Vietnam War. I mean, remember Lyndon Johnson, hardly the, the greatest progressive in history, uh, but he responded to the movements of his day, to the demands of his time. And what did you get in two years with Lyndon Johnson? The end of the poll tax, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, a war on poverty, and A. Philip Randolph and Martin Luther King Jr. at the White House defend, delivering the people's budget, a people's plan uh, for essentially creating an American social democracy. Now, we didn't get everything they had in their plan, but we had this, this moment, this remarkable moment. And, uh, and then Johnson squandered it, squandered it all on the Vietnam War. And, and this is why when we have these discussions, you can see how close you get to that next step. And then you yeah. see where they fail. And uh, this is the fear that I have. I fear why I talk about war and peace more than I think a lot of folks that talk about politics, because I know what can happen if you launch into a war you shouldn't launch into. It's also why I talk about you know, these moments, these possibilities, and the necessity to seize them rather than to let them go. So let me play devil's advocate real quick on the Reagan era point, and either one of you can jump in on this. I'm curious what you both think, but um, I would argue that no, the Reagan era has not come to an end because the establishment of both parties, their conventional wisdom is deregulate, privatize have lower taxes on the wealthy, lower taxes for capital gains. So I think there's a giant disconnect, and there always has been for decades, arguably longer, of what the people want versus what the elites want. And so you could argue in some sense that among the people, the Reagan era never even existed because the, you know, the New Deal stuff was always popular. You know what I mean? But um, in terms of the conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C., among both parties, I would argue the Reagan era is definitely not over. And a lot of it has to do with the influence of big money. If you're taking big money from corporate donors and billionaires, you're always going to do their bidding. So I think it's a little bit wishful thinking to declare just because the people want it to be the case that the Reagan era is over, that the Reagan era is over. And even the example of like the, the Biden COVID relief bill thing is means tested to high heavens. You know, it's, it's incredibly means tested. They dropped the $15 minimum wage. I don't see these bold universal programs that would define a, a new deal type era. So yeah, I mean, I want to be convinced uh, at the thought that the Reagan era is over, but I don't think we're anywhere near that point yet. I can't convince you because that's that's exactly where I'm at. Um, I think we are. But the one place where I might be vaguely more optimistic than you, but I doubt it, uh, uh, is that I think we are at one of those critical junctures where it could be ended. But not that we're there. Um, you can't declare the Reagan era over when we just passed up a chance to raise the minimum wage and take people out of poverty. People work three hours a week. So it's not over. Um, I, I so love that you brought up means testing, right? Because that's exactly right. This when they come in here and start to means test, what they what they say is that you know, yeah, we will. We're going to give relief to people up to a certain point. But we're not going to give relief to to all sorts of other folks, to, to tens of millions of other people 
uh, because they might use it to pay off student loans, you know, or they might they might use it to to you know pay off their house so that they don't have to always you know go go to the banker, uh, you know, and beg for beg for a you know a home improvement loan or something like that. And and you see the the genius of universal programs is that they become beneficial to uh, the great mass of people, not to the super rich, because the super rich, you know, they can they can do as they choose, not to the very rich, they can generally do as they choose. But when you have universal programs that that allow people who are uh, poor, low income, uh, working class, even middle class to have better lives, they fall in love with those programs and they fall in love with, with what government can do for them. Right. And so uh, that's why Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid are so popular. They are essentially universal. And and so this is something that Democrats desperately need to understand. And the weird part about it is um, our Republican friends understand it really well. They that's what they the first place where they come running in is with means testing. Right. They're like, yeah, yeah. We definitely want to do good things for the people we never did anything good for, right? Okay. We definitely now want to do good things, but we want to we want to really limit it. We want to really constrain it, right? They they despise, they hate, they're terrified of universality because universality proves the government can work. And mm, so yeah. I don't, yeah. And Crystal, you have much wiser things to say than I on this, but no, I don't think for a second that the Reagan era is over. But I think the Reagan era could be over, and it could be over this year. It's just a question of whether uh, the Democrats who have control of the House and the Senate narrowly and of the White House uh, take that lesson from Victor Hara, the great uh, Chilean folk singer, uh, who said, take hold of your destiny. The future begins today. I guess what I would say is I don't really disagree with your analysis. We're in this kind of weird space where, yeah, Biden is like the emissary of the past 40 years of politics. You know, this is he's always situated himself in the center of the party. He's gone along along with, hey, let's cut the budget, the deficit, all that stuff. And yet at the same time, you have a politics that's obviously very unsettled with the rise of Trump, with the rise of Sanders. And I would say that even though, yeah, in a certain sense, the population was never really on board with the full extent of Reaganism, it was more popular (laughs) than it is now. And there has been this major shift in the in terms terms of um, inter- a progressive shift on a range of issues. But the checks are a perfect example. I mean, when Andrew Yang started running his campaign for president on UBI, nobody even knew what it was. And it was wildly unpopular when they found out what it was. And now it's got like, you know, 70, 80 percent support for direct checks. So the greater that distance grows between what the establishments of the party are actually doing and what the people actually want, I think that creates the pop possibility for something more. So I do feel like the hollowness, the destruction, how terrible, like the the imperialist war policies, the trickle-down economics, the racialization of, you know, the conversation about welfare reform, all of that stuff, I feel like has been exposed, but the new thing, whatever it's going to be, hasn't been born. And so that's a cause for optimism, and it's also a cause for fear. 
because nothing is inevitable. It could go in a good direction. It could go in a really, really terrible direction. Um, Remains to be seen at this point is my view. But, John, I also wanted, and this is relevant, actually, to the conversation about the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. I wanted to get your thoughts specifically on the primary, the Democratic primary that's going on for the Senate in your home state of Wisconsin, because this is one of those places where you have a really clear, like, battle for the soul going on. You've got this, you know, son of a billionaire who moves to the state and thinks he's going to run. You've got populist care. You've actually got a number of progressives who are running in that race. Just lay out some of the dynamics there and how you see it. Sure. We're going to have a great race in Wisconsin. And um, and uh, and there'll be a lot of other great races because uh, I so can sometimes be very optimistic, but I do want to emphasize that uh, I fear that Biden and, and uh, the Democrats won't get control of their Senate problem. They won't get on top. And if they don't, then the fight for control of the Senate in 2022 is going to be at a presidential level. Uh, you will see huge, unimaginable battles in the states where there are open seats or where there are vulnerable incumbents of both parties. And Wisconsin is going to be one of them. Simply no question. This state is currently represented by Ron Johnson, who is, you know, I won't go into the details of why he is the most unimaginably bad senator um, mm-hmm. of the bunch. Uh, and I think he even I think he even overwhelms Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz uh, because of his consistent embrace of conspiracy theories, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's that vulnerability. And there's a lot of Democrats in Wisconsin who see that as this is a race that could be won. They're right about that. Uh, Democrats in Wisconsin have been on a winning streak. Since 2016, uh, winning every statewide race in 2018, winning state Supreme Court races and other contests in off cycles. And so there's a lot of possibility there. But it's still a real battleground state. I mean, when the Democrats won in 2018, they were winning those races, uh, except for Tammy Baldwin, who won a landslide. But most of them were winning by relatively narrow margins. And so as a result, uh, there's a real sort of fight to say who can win, uh, who can Maybe beat Ron Johnson, or if he doesn't run, who can beat whoever else comes up? Uh, you do have a billionaire candidate, uh, or maybe not a billionaire, but a billionaire by inheritance candidate, uh, and his name is Alex Lazary. He uh, moved to Wisconsin uh, not that long ago and did an interview, uh, which I, I hope I paraphrase accurately, uh, in which he spoke about how surprised he was that Wisconsin was, you know, like a interesting place. Uh, I'll be even more specific. He was like yeah. shocked to learn that there were bars and restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I can tell you as a, uh, my family came to Wisconsin in 1828 um, and opened the bars and restaurants. And so literally my, my great, 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 great grandfather, Abner Nichols, who was the state treasurer of Wisconsin, or territorial treasurer of Wisconsin and served in the first legislature, left politics to open a bar. Um, yeah. And so I kind of know a little about the state and I, and, um, what I know is that that's not a real good introduction. Uh, neither is the, neither is getting a vaccine, getting a COVID vaccine at the age of 33 when other people, when there's still a lot of elderly people uh, who couldn't get it. In fact, my 89 year old mother got her vaccine after Alex Lazary. Um, and so at, some fundamental level, I think that that uh, you have a candidate who kind of fits some of these billionaire models. He's tried very, very hard to present himself as 
um, someone who is sympathetic to economic and social and racial justice. And, you know, and I, I respect the efforts he's made, uh, but he is going to face a primary. And he's got one guy who's already running, Tom Nelson, who's the Outagamie County uh, executive. And to give you an example of how different it is, uh, how different these two candidates are, uh, Tom Nelson actually had a garage sale to raise money for his campaign. Um, and uh, was selling, you know, this kid was tired of some dinosaurs, so he was trying to sell those. Um, toy dinosaurs, but. Uh, and, and so he's very populist. He's written a book uh, about uh, labor unions battling to keep their factories open, which is actually quite a good book. And uh, so he's an interesting candidate. And I think he's got some, uh, some real good arguments to make. It's such a juxtaposition. I think our state treasurer, uh, Sarah Godlewski, who comes from up in the Eau Claire, Wisconsin area, and uh, fought an incredibly courageous and excellent battle to keep the Office of State Treasurer uh, from being eliminated by Scott Walker and then won the job. She, there's a good chance she will run. Uh, and there's also a good chance that Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, will run. And I just would emphasize that Mandela Barnes is quite a story. He was a community organizer uh, in Milwaukee, uh, very young state legislator, uh, and you know came up as a, a true activist, a true progressive. And uh, he is he was born in uh, the poorest, and I believe I hope I'm correct on this, the poorest and most incarcerated zip code in Wisconsin. Uh, and he's now the lieutenant governor of the state at I think 33, 34, uh, preparing to maybe run for U.S. Senate. He hasn't said he will, and I, I don't know if he will. But if he does, um, it will be uh, a quite remarkable, again, juxtaposition with uh, a millionaire U.S. senator, eventually a billionaire candidate. Uh, and I can tell you that in my view, what wins in Wisconsin is uh, is someone who has deep ties to the state. I think that matters. Uh, but I also think that for a Democrat to win in Wisconsin, and I strongly believe this, the best model is uh, a economic justice model that uh, speaks in a clear in clear ways to uh, the shared suffering of our rural folks as well as folks in our deindustrialized cities, and uh, I think that can win. And I think that is why in 2016, uh, Bernie Sanders swept Wisconsin, won 71 of 72 counties in the primary. And almost won the 72nd of the counties. Uh, so I, I do think a Bernie Sanders model is a very, very good model for Wisconsin. Yeah. Well, and by the way, Tom Nelson's a good example of that, too. I happened to interview him this week about his book, so <laughs> I got to know him a little bit. And um, he represents a Trump county, and he's a Bernie guy. So he's another one who's a, a good example there. I also interviewed the lieutenant governor. He's very impressive. I know a little bit less about his politics, but um, he was also very impressive when we talked to him. Yeah. And, and can I, Tom Nelson's the guy who had the garage sale. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> love that. Uh, and, but the interesting thing about Tom Nelson is not only does he represent a county that voted for Trump, uh, he's won there regularly, which is very striking. And the other interesting thing about him is this book that he's written. I don't, I don't, Crystal, did you get a chance to actually read it? Have you read the book? Yeah, I took. I did. I took a look at the book. It's pretty good. It's a fascinating story, too, of yeah. how 
You know, it was it was going to be the typical story of the mill gets shut, the the factory gets shut down, the jobs go away, et cetera. And basically the union and the workers were able to fight back and win. Very rare story in America, Kyle. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that's very true. Mandela Um, Barnes. Mandela Barnes is very progressive. Uh, This is the lieutenant governor and in fact was a really central part of the Wisconsin uprising in 2011 was was there front uh at the marches the protests and um and so he has a track record of uh of, of very progressive that's great john final question for you we have right now we had the rise of trump trump still lingering around in the background and potentially will reemerge in 2024. We have big money dominating politics as it has for decades. We have the climate crisis. We have a pandemic. We have, at the very least, a terrible recession. Some may call it a depression. We have feckless Democratic leadership. We have a sheepish left flank among Congress people. Given all that, do me a favor and make the case for optimism for the future. Oh, that's easy. Um, cynicism is the coward's way out, right? Um, that's, you say, oh, it's not going to work. It's not possible. You know, we've, we've been beaten in the past, so we might as well not try, you know, or, or we might as well, you know, give up on it, whatever. No, come on. Uh, the fact is that, that, uh, I've covered enough politics and seen enough, uh, transition moments, uh, enough critical junctures where things go the right way. Uh, to to recognize where we're at, you're exactly right when you describe all of the the things that are in play right now. Um, we do have a pandemic that's revealed the, the horrific inequities in our society. Uh, we do have uh, unemployment, underemployment, uh, a crisis for small businesses and small farmers. The farm crisis right now is real. Um, we have a a, a racial justice. In a crisis in America that has gone unaddressed uh, for 400 years, and and that that must be addressed. Um, we have you know need to to deal with the questions of immigration and refugees in fair and humane and and, and good ways. Uh, we have climate crisis. We have uh, military industrial complex still being funded at absurd levels. All of this, and you know, so it's easy to say, well, how are you going to fix all that? Right. Well, the answer is, the answer is. You don't fix just one part of it. You got to go for the whole thing. And you got to recognize that that's what you build. You build a movement that is about fundamentally changing it. And you don't build that from the center. You don't build that, you know, in a marginal way. You have to actually promise huge change. And so here's my optimism. Uh, I think that part of what's so jarring about this moment, but also part of what's so possible, is that our media system has, uh, the traditional media system has imploded. It's it, it literally, you know, much of what defined media uh, even 10, 15 years ago has fallen apart. Uh, we have the rise of new media, but it's ill-defined and it's going in all sorts of directions and it's incredibly complex. But the fact is that we are we're communicating in all sorts of different ways and we're seeing openings to transform our politics where the big money may not be necessary, where it may actually be possible to wage campaigns with mass election of small donations and, and uh, return of grassroots politics. And so, you know, I think that we are at a moment that has a lot of FDR 1930s resonance to it, right? Overwhelming problem, 
daunting challenges, things that that um, it's sort of unimaginable that you could even begin to address them, right? And so that's the point at which to say, yeah, we've got an answer for this. We're ready to do it. And the problem I've got with Democrats at this point is that too frequently they don't do that. Um, look, the the way out of this moment and what I am optimistic for, because I do see a rising generation that 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 it does talk about this, is that if Democrats or whatever grouping, but I, you know, let's use the Democrats as the example at this point, if they're willing to step up and say, we can give you economic and social and racial justice in five years. We can do this. There's there, there's there's a plan to do this or six years or seven, but we 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 can do this in your lifetime. We can do this now and we could save the planet. Uh, and there's ways to do it and start to get very specific about how it can be done. And I'll give you a close with a specific. And that was, I was talking to Ro Khanna the other day and, uh, I don't know whether you, have you two heard of his cheaters act? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't, it, but it hasn't been publicized much, but I'm going to write about it. It's just a fantastic proposal. Um, he's basically, you know, using a lot of data and some articles written by scholars and stuff like that, uh, come up with the answer on how much the rich don't pay, right? And and how many uh, IRS specialists who target the rich and multinational corporations to get them to pay their taxes, it would take to raise a trillion dollars. And the fact is, he's, he's planned it out. He's got a bill. And, um, and I want to see that next politic. And I believe that if that's how close we are, if you have people stepping up and saying, yeah, I, I know how to find us a trillion bucks and I can find you the better part of another trillion by cutting the military budget in half. And you know what I mean? To start to really talk about what we can do, how possible it is to get to a much more radical place. And yeah. I think it's within the realm of possibility, again, pulling together that thread of a changing media system, how we communicate, a changing politics, how we raise the resources that are needed to build a politics, new people coming into that politics. And then also that final thing that I talked about at the start, and that is necessity. I don't think we have a lot of time to get it right. And so I think that the combination of big ideas and necessity can work. I'm not sure we're going to get that from Joe Biden, to be very honest with you. But I do think we can get it from a rising generation that's ready to, to do a different politics. And is at the center of this conversation has been the question of when does this rising generation and some of its uh, older folks who are involved, when do they stand up to the Democratic Party and say you're not doing it right? That is, I the would, that is the question. That is the fundamental question. And that's what you cover in your book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, um, which everyone should check out. John, it's always so great to talk to you and, and uh, have the benefit of your wisdom. We really appreciate it. I've got much more wisdom from the two of you than I've given today, so I appreciate it. <laughs> I doubt that. Yeah, Great to see you, John. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the things I was really thinking about as we were having that talk is we're in this kind of in-between in space, mm -hmm. right? Where, like, kind of politics has broken down of the past, which could be a good thing. Mm -hmm. But yet you have this weird, like, caretaker president who's probably done all point. that he's ultimately going to do as a president. I mean, I know I get a lot of pushback on that. But if you're not getting rid of the filibuster and Joe Manchin has already said, I'm not doing anything else through reconciliation, like, what are you going to get done? Nothing. 
And so you're in this weird holding pattern where it just feels like there's so much radical change happening under the surface and where it leads to ultimately is very unclear. I actually think we're going to learn a lot from the primaries that take place this year for Senate races. I think we're going to learn a lot from the races in Virginia that are on the Virginia governor's mansion Mm -hmm. is up this year. I think that'll in some ways give us more indication of where we're headed than, you know, the fact that you've got the Biden caretaker placeholder administration in the White House right now. Okay, those are interesting thoughts. Let me tell you my thought on this, because I kind of want to be talked out of what I'm about to tell you. Um, The way I'm looking at politics at the moment is similar to one of the things I said during uh, Mm -hmm. the talk with all three of us, that you have this elite class, the establishment, and they are caretakers of the status quo. Yes. And they maintain the status quo. And really, the powerful are coasting off of their political donations from big money interests, billionaires, corporations, so on and so forth. And it's been like that for decades, really ever since, I think it was 1978, that the first Supreme Court case said, effectively, money equals speech. And there's been a number of cases since then that say, yeah, go ahead, spend as much as you want. And ever since then, big money has taken over our political system. My fear is the system is so ossified that you basically can have a permanently detached overclass Mm. of the elites that sort of run society. And all of this energy that's happening at the grassroots level, which is real, it is very, very real. But like, is it possible it just always falls on deaf ears and like there is no manifestation of that energy in terms of how we're governed? Because that's what I feel like at the moment is that like there's all this grassroots energy and a lot of people believe all the right things and they're fighting for the right things and we want universal health care and we want $15 minimum wage and we want, you know, paid vacation time by law, whatever, fill in the blank with whatever good policy. And it just it hits a brick wall of corruption. So... Can you talk me out of that being our permanent reality that we're always going to be in this neoliberal era where we just crash against, you know, the the rocks of corporatism and all this energy goes nowhere? I don't think anything is certain. Mm -hmm. I think it's all very much like I don't believe in this sort of politics of inevitability Mm -hmm. either that eventually the grassroots is going to get their way Mm -hmm. or that it's inevitable, inevitable that the elites are able to maintain their grip on power. But, you know, we actually I saw this clip. I I shared it with you. So I know you saw it, too, of a West Virginia voter in Mingo County, Mm -hmm. one of the poorest counties in the country, a place I've been to with long history of, of coal mining. Some of the, you know, most storied labor fights happened there. It's the Hatfield and McCoy's very historic part of the country. And it's also part of the country that used to be totally democratically um, inclined and still at the local level will vote for Democrats. But hard right loves Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Right. And so CNN goes to Mingo County and they interview interview these voters and they're all like, what are these Republicans doing? They should be voting for the Relief Act. They said it's a bunch of bullshit that mm-hmm. they're not on board with this. But ultimately, is that going to cause those voters to turn on the Republican Party? No. Right. Yeah. And why? Uh, why? It's because shit. 
People have been convinced that the problem isn't these Republicans or the Joe Mansions of the world. And again, this is West Virginia, so highly relevant, who are screwing them over that are the real problem. They've been convinced that it's their fellow citizen who has a different ideological or is a different place in the culture war and has, you know, lives in a town rather than in the country or whatever it is, that they're the real problem. And so that's what allows this massive distance between the elites and the public to remain. Just think about, even putting the Democratic Party aside, think about the Republican Party. Like, this relief bill is supported by a majority of their voters. Mm -hmm. And yet, none of them... Strong majority, by the way, 59%. Not one of them votes for it. Mm -hmm. So you look at that and you go, this is crazy. Like, how can they maintain this posture? But that's why, because they convince them, that's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is like the person coming over, the immigrant seeking a better life here. Your biggest problem are the liberals who are trying to destroy your way of life. And a a similar um, thing plays out on the left. And so that's how you're able to maintain this massive distance between what people actually want and what's being delivered here. But who do we blame for that? Like, do we blame the media for not educating people about the reality of politics when it comes to economic stuff? Do we blame those people as individuals for not being educated enough? Should they should the burden be on them to seek out the information, even though they don't have it right now? Should the burden just be on the system, broadly speaking? Who do we blame for that? Because there's a lot of blame to go around, in my estimation. I always blame the elites, not the people, Mm -hmm. because it's not their fault. They're in, like, this fucked up system with everyone lying to them and telling them, like, pitting them against each other for profit. It's a fucking racket. It's a racket for the politicians. Like, you know, Josh Hawley, who said, oh, I'm working class, whatever. He's not going to vote for the PRO Act, which is this big pro-union legislation that's going to come to the Senate. Didn't vote for $15 minimum wage. And didn't vote for $15 minimum wage. In the House, five Republicans voted for the pro-union legislation. Every Democrat except one. Uh, um, Quillar. Quillar, yeah, voted for it. He's like the worst ever. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party, one of the worst ever. Let's not not give him that total accolade. But yeah, it's it's a fucking racket for them. Because they don't have to do anything other than Josh Hawley can get out up and do his like stop the steal nonsense and go on Tucker Carlson and raise a ton of money from the grassroots. And Mr. Prep School Bitch Boy masquerading as a populist. There you go. Yeah. And it's it's also a total fucking racket for the media organizations that need to gin up some kind of like it, it's fear sells. And so this is the thing that they've decided to make people afraid of so that they can keep getting um, ratings, so that they can keep selling ads. And so they're the ones to blame. People are trying to, like, live their life and put food on the table. And they don't have time to, like, sort through all of this bullshit that they're being constantly inundated with. So I always place the blame with the elites who are maintaining their power, their money, and their position by creating this bullshit narrative and total racket. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like I'm running out of patience. I want the fever to break in a number of ways. You know, like, for me, one of the things that was really pissing me off this week is uh, just the total lack of a real fight among the House progressives on $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. I really wanted 23 of them, which is I think that's the number that signed Ro Khanna's letter. I wanted 23 of them to be like, no, we're not going to vote for your bill unless you put the $15 minimum wage in there. And there's more of us that are demanding it be in there than there are those demanding it's not in there. So you do the math. Either you try to go get Mansion and Cinema, 
you know, or the eight total, right? If you try to go get them or you try to convince 23 and none of us are budging a fucking inch. Mm -hmm. But there was no fight. And so, like, I feel like everybody's being unmasked in this situation. I don't want to downplay. Like, there were many good things in that bill. And I saw the Jeff Stein reporting that, like, cutting the poverty rate, some preposterous amount, like nearly 50%. By half among children. Yeah, that's huge. And I don't want to downplay that. I'm not of this school of thought of like, let's not inject those facts into the conversation because they're inconvenient for my narrative. No, I don't give a fuck. I don't care about a fucking narrative. I'm happy that you're cutting child poverty in half. But like, yeah, if what is going to wake people up to realize that at this point it looks like nobody's fucking fighting for them and we're being diverted and our there's obfuscation endlessly on culture war nonsense i don't know (laughs) i mean that's the answer is i don't know but that doesn't mean that it's impossible you know a lot of times in politics things seem like they're going nowhere seem like they're impossible and then suddenly a way is created and i know i talk about the checks a lot but i think it's a perfect example of course of something that would have been completely like imagine if barack obama had it had it proposed we're just going to send checks out to like most of the country people would have lost their minds it would have been massive and not just at the elite there would have been a massive backlash but and i think you know it's partly the unique dynamics of the pandemic it's partly also the way that donald trump has scrambled the circuits Mm -hmm. and he's kind of like if the reagan era for the republican party was about this austerity trickle down economics and the culture war and the like the super hawkish foreign policy trump realized that those two like the 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 culture war was the only part that was really still popular with the base mm-hmm. the economic like austerity thing wasn't popular the endless wars wasn't popular so even though he governed like a typical exactly Republican like yeah, exactly like in them. almost every way. Yeah. Um, what he fixated on and what he made the Republican Party turn around was the culture war. And just, you know, the other pieces have basically been sort of rhetorically abandoned. So now, yeah, you're in this real, I think we're in this real transitional place. And that's both a place of possibility and also a place of that is very scary because anything could Anything could emerge out of it. I don't think I, I'm. I know this might be a little bit simplistic theory, but I don't think we're going to get anywhere unless we have a champion. Unless we have a champion, and honestly, I don't think Bernie's that champion anymore. I think a real champion would have said, "Fuck your 1.9 trillion dollar bill. Put the 15 dollar minimum wage in there, bitch. Put it in." I'm not going to fucking. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm not going to vote for the without the. It's a 67 percent issue in the country. Right. You would lift over a million people out of poverty. Like that. Australia has the equivalent of a fi- about a $15 minimum wage. There are Scandinavian countries where their minimum wage, they don't have a minimum wage, but they have basically universal um, collective bargaining, and their minimum wage is way above $15. Don't tell me we can't fucking do it. Yeah. I know we can fucking do it. Put it in there. But he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Right, and this is the place, is mansion and cinema and people who are in the right wing of the party they're not moderates or centrists they are way on a step with the Mm -hmm. american people they're willing to blow the shit up to hurt more people like that because of their commitment Mm -hmm. to giving less to people and helping fewer people they're perfect and the media gives them a total pass oh we have to listen to as if they're reasonable yeah we have to respect they're coming from these difficult states shut up like cinema in particular in Arizona, minimum wage is popular. The filibuster is not popular. West like, Virginia you're not representing your constituents. Same thing, West Virginia. Sixty-three percent. No state support for fifteen dollars minimum wage would benefit more 
from these from getting rid of the filibuster and from passing minimum wage hike and from sending more checks out, not fewer checks, and upping the amount, and by the way, let's do it every damn month, than the state of West Virginia. So don't give me this bullshit that they're representing their constituents. But they get a complete pass from the media when they walk away, and they are perfectly willing to walk away and blow up the whole thing. And you know what? I wish the progressives would do the same thing and just learn to take the hatred of the media. They, have no they, fight. Would, they would not get the cover, right? They would be no, they get totally attacked. demonized. But How that's can you good. be this money from families and kids, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a hard thing when you actually care about these things. But at some point, if you don't draw a line, then you're irrelevant. And that's what I'm saying. My patience has worn thin with them. You know, like I'm, I'll never be the type of person to say that these people are corrupt when they're not fucking corrupt. You're never going to get me to say they're corrupt because they're just not. I'm sorry if you disagree on that. You're just fucking wrong. But they are the weakest motherfuckers I've ever seen in my life. And they have zero fight in them at all, at all, at all. And they're scared of their own shadow. And they're scared if the media makes a big... The media shits on these people anyway. If they're going to shit on you anyway, at least give them a fucking reason to yeah, do it. True. And fight for a $15 minimum wage and fight for Medicare for all. Embrace their hatred. I, it's That's just, the it's, only path. And by the way, we were talking about, uh, you know, the political reality now being that universal basic income, like monthly checks are very... Uh, they're loved now. Like the yeah. numbers for them shot through the roof. Uh, it reminded me of that UBI study that just came out. Did you see the one from Stockton, mm-hmm. California? Yeah. So, Actually, we interviewed him, uh, Mayor Tubbs. Oh, Tubbs? That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, shout out to him for really sort of leading the way on this. And yep. and he, uh, it was just $500. It was a smaller UBI bill. But um, it, it, in every measurable way, it was successful. Yes. So like most of the money went to food. I think most of it went to food, then it went to utilities. It was all, like, very—none of it was going to, like, it you know, strip like, club gonna, or right, whatever the fuck. Gonna, like, get drunk and Yeah, whatever, n- none of it know. was going to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the people who got the UBI were more likely to get employed, go yes. find a job and get employed, which flies directly in the face of the argument that, oh, it breeds laziness and it makes people want to do nothing. Didn't happen. Let me tell you, one of the stories that he told us in our interview with him over on Rising is a young man who was working, I think, in a minimum wage job that he's miserable in. And with he with the UBI benefit, he was able to take a day off to go interview for a new job that would have a higher wage and that you know reflected the, the broader skill set that he was able to offer and was able to get that job and move on. And he literally, because he was so paycheck to paycheck, before that just $500 UBI benefit, he wasn't able to take a day off to go interview for a new job. Like that tells you everything. Everything. So, I mean, this opportunity, even though it was there available, even though he was qualified for it, he had a chance to get it, it, you know, be able to earn a higher wage, do something that he finds really fulfilling now, he literally didn't have the money to take one day off of work to interview for it. Or... People don't have the money to get childcare, or they don't have the money to to get the interview clothes that allow them to present to be able to to get the job. So yeah, what they found was actually people who were getting the benefit versus those who weren't increased their employment more, and ever, even down to the basic level of they were healthier, mm-hmm. they had less depression, yep. less anxiety. Yes, that literally went down across the board. All the the psychological all illnesses they all they all plummeted. And as you were talking, it hit me. What that five hundred dollar UBI did is it bought this person freedom. Yes, economic security Just is freedom. Little bit, Just a of little bit of help, space. and it was like, oh, I got a new job, and now the job pays more, and it was this, and it was I'm this happier. snowball effect of happiness, exactly. Yes. yes. So I mean, that's super important, and of course, you know, and anyway, that was going to get me back to the uh, to the COVID relief bill that just passed. Even though, yes, fourteen hundred dollars, great, but I'm. Uh, 
again, I want recurring. Like, this is nonsense now. What do we have? Every four months, we got to come back and do another package where you send out another check just do a ubi i mean we have fucking social the idea like this is you know insane and extreme and we've never done we have social security this is what we do with all old people in this country here have some money and shut the fuck up (laughs) do that with everybody (laughs) do that with everybody right like what the fuck don't they do that in alaska too they yes yes they do it's tied to the oil yeah Mm -hmm. yeah no i i mean that's the thing that's complicated in the analysis of this bill and um there's a lot of like triumphalism of like, see, guys, Biden's amazing. Look at this package. It's and, means tested everything. It's and and look, there is an argument to be made there because yes, for the length of time that these benefits are in place, they're going to cut child poverty by half. They create basically a basic income, a mm-hmm. guaranteed income for families with kids. These are big things, and it's the first meaningful expansion of the welfare state mm-hmm. in you know probably forty years. The past forty years has all been about cutting the social safety net, cutting the welfare state, but it all expires in a year. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. all over in a no. year. It's like, okay, that's great, but why didn't you make these things permanent? That's why what I'm saying. You, and you could have, right? There's yes. nothing that would have kept you from, through reconciliation, I think you can only do it for 10 years. Fine, do it for 10 years. Get the minimum wage in there. And so there seems to be a lot of magical thinking about, yeah, but once this expires, they're going to make it permanent. Mm-hmm. They are? How? Show me the yeah. show me the plan. Show me how you're going to get there. My how are you going to get Manchin on, on board? How many how are you going to get 10 Republicans on board? How are you going to ma- pull that off? I'll believe it when I see it. But to my eyes, where the Biden administration stands right now is they've done a good job on vaccines, really important. Um they got a, you know, means tested half measure of a relief bill through that does have really significant good things, mm-hmm. but is totally temporary. And that's probably about all they're going to accomplish. Um, pivot here, but when are you getting your vaccine? Uh, as soon as they let me. As as they let <laughs> yeah, you. I'm on the list. You're on a list? Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, what did they say, by May? They said by late May, but, but there may have been some weasel words in there where they were like, we'll have the distribution ability by late May. It may have been something like that, not like you'll have your shot by May. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's the always like thing a... thing I really cared about was my parents, and they both have it, mm-hmm. have both doses now, so I feel a lot... Of early. Yeah. And my dad's, old, you know, he's in his 80s. Mom's in her 70s. She's also an essential worker. She's mm-hmm. a teacher. So I was really anxious about them getting it. They have it. So I feel like I can breathe a little bit easier there. Yeah. My mom's a PT. She got hers. Um, my sister got one. I still haven't. Got, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm like right in the group that's like society goes, fuck yourself, buddy. <laughs> like you get to the Good back luck. of the line, yeah. bitch. How old are you? 33? Okay, no history of, like, health issues? Go fuck yourself. So anyway, I, I'll be waiting. I, I probably will be, like, literally last in May to get it, so. We're probably on some, like, near a tandem Biden administration vaccine blacklist anyway. You're like, That's put possible. those people to the back of the um, I want the <laughs> Pfizer one because it's one shot and it's, you know, you're done after one. I thought, isn't that a Johnson Johnson? Oh, Johnson & Johnson. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Pfizer, you're right. I'm sorry. Pfizer one is not that. The Johnson & Johnson one is... One and done. Yeah. They say the Moderna one, I guess, has the most side effects. Most side I read effects. That. But my yeah. parents, by the way, bo- both got the Moderna and they were had very mild reaction to it. For yeah. My mom but neither the... of them had COVID either because that's the other thing they say. If you've had COVID, then it has a stronger. Well, that yes, that's effect. anecdotal. And you heard that from me because I was talking about my mom's coworkers that happened with them. So, but but I've once seen, you had I've COVID. Seen some oh, other... you've heard that too. Okay. Yeah, I have. Outside of the Outside story of I told you. you. Yes. Um, yeah. My mom had the the Moderna one and she had side effects. She had uh, a little bit of a headache, chills, but it went away in a day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't terrible. Some people really get clonked yeah. on this shit. 
Yeah, you well, know? your mom is younger than my mom also, and so she probably has, like, that's the other thing they say, old people don't have as much of a reaction mm-hmm. because the immune system is... That's right, yeah. exactly. But so in theory, I'm, we should, you know, we should get fucked up on this vaccine. Yeah, that's true. Maybe right? we shouldn't be so anxious to get Yeah, exactly. Um, the thing I'm happy about is my son's already back to school, and my daughter, who's 13, is going to be going back after spring break, and she's really anxious for that, and it's been, that's been, you know, over a year that they've been out, so... For, yeah, know, that's been tough for a lot of people. That's a big deal for them. Tough for a lot of people, you know, like tough trying for me to ju- having to deal with their juggle childcare. <laughs> yeah, all that. Yeah, of course. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's like you know, you have multiple full time jobs. Basically. <laughs> Seriously, that's what it's like. You know, um, just a quick shout out to to John Nichols, amazing guest. I just wanted to give some of his books a shout out real quick. Yes. Yeah. So uh, one that caught my eye. This one's from 2013. Dollarocracy. How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. Yeah. That true. sounds tasty. True. Uh, and then the most recent one, I think that's the one that he touched on here. Um, the Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, the Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. Yep. So yeah, check those out. really thoughtful guy. Um, you know, has that sort of broad sweep of history in his mind. So I always find it useful to get his perspective. And there in Wisconsin, obviously, has really super dupe, deep roots in that state and has watched the political evolution there as well. So great to have his thoughts. Do we have um, Do we have June next week? Is that we do? We do. Uh, I I don't want to. We have the next like three weeks lined up, something like that. But I don't, I'm not going to say any of the other ones. Okay. We do. We have June, also known as Shoe on Head, next week. That's going to be fun. That is going to be fun. Very popular. You know, um, I was going to call her an online commentator, but that seems like too diminishing mm, or yeah. no too like no i'm an online commentator <laughs> like, fuck you like shut the fuck up she's a youtuber like me <laughs> that's what you are you're a youtuber <laughs> yeah but uh, we'll have fun we'll have fun with her for sure awesome well thanks for watching or listening or whatever you're doing guys enjoy your weekend enjoy your week we'll see you back here next week